Hi, I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Welcome, everybody, to Lit and Libations. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Aja. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk about these movies. I am, too. I am, too. <laughs> I'm trying so hard to be, like, cool and chill and calm because we were laughing hysterically before this started. Yeah. And Sadie thinks it's fun to do that. And I'm just embarrassed because <laughs> I'm trying yes. to, like, have my shit together. You have your shit together. You're also allowed to have a good time and laugh with me because we have a good time together. I'm happy to be here. We do. I'm happy to stay here. I'm happy to talk to you. I'm glad we talked for like an hour beforehand. It's my favorite pre-recording ritual is to talk to you about everything under the sun. Um, Mm -hmm. And today it just happened to be Ted Lasso. So we were laughing really hard. Well, that's how we ended it. That's how we ended it. Yes. (laughs) I think we we covered like six or seven topics. Oh, of course we did. Well, it's our weekly catch up. We have right. a lot to say to each other. Oh, we do. Um, but yeah, okay. we are both loving Ted Lasso. So I hope yes. I know there's lots of other people who are into it. But if you haven't seen the show, I really recommend it. It's so yes. good. Yes. Okay. On to uh, the topic at hand, Cyrano de Bergerac. What are we discussing today, Audra? So we watched Roxanne. Yes. Right? Steve Martin, Daryl Hannah. Um, and then we also watched Cyrano uh, starring... Peter Dinklage. Uh, and I can't, I'm trying to remember when did that one come out? 2021. Right. So and the other one was out, in like the 80s. Yeah. It's like 89 or something or 87, yeah. I think. Uh, pretty so early in Steve both, Martin's career. Good And good choices on these two. Like really different. Very, um, very different interpretations of the text, but in my opinion. So awesome. And I loved both of them. Really? You. Good. I can't wait to talk about it. Okay. You didn't like Cyrano? No, no, I don't. Oh, not. I can't wait to talk about it. This is okay. great because we both love, so we both love Roxanne. Yes. Oh, but before we, okay, so what are you drinking? Um, so I did not get fancy this time, but it is at least a really good wine. So I'm, I'm drinking a rosé, um, but okay. over the weekend I went to a winery out here in Berkshire County. It's called Balderdash Cellars and they make a really, really great rosé. It's called their Truth Serum. It's delicious and so I'm enjoying that bottle part of that bottle at least um that I got over the weekend what are you having so I made I have two drinks (laughs) I'm I'm I made so I took kiwi uh lime juice and agave syrup and muddled that together and then uh added tequila oh my god and shook it up and then strained that and then I added I topped it with a little bit of ginger beer so it's kind and of it's, like a kiwi margarita with kind of yeah with a little bit of ginger. That sounds delicious and it looks really good. I like the color that it has to it. That green is really pretty. Yeah. Yeah, I've drank most of it now, but yeah, it was um <laughs> it's really good. So I like that. And then but it wasn't very big. Yeah. And I knew we would probably be out here for a while cuz I knew we had a lot to talk about. Um so then I also so one of my favorite beers is Delirium Tremens. Have you ever had it? Mm-mm. Um so it's a German, I think, beer. Yeah. Or Belgian. Uh, oh, nice. And it's really good. And it's like 8% alcohol content. Like, so it's kind of a... That's pretty high. It's a, yeah. It's a high point beer. Um, But it's like one of my favorites. And then this one, it actually kind of has a little bit of a 
almost like banana-y flavor to it too like but not in a bad way like in a really good way um but then some for some reason this one popped up in my fridge and I don't know where it came from I'm assuming Kendrick brought it home for some reason but I don't know why and I haven't asked him about it yet it's been a couple days and I keep forgetting to ask him well he's not like a stop at home and just get beer on the way so I'm wondering if it was given to him but this one is cherry and elderberry oh so it's Belgian ale with cherry and elderberry and it's like actually it's pretty good Nice. I like a beer that um, is efficient. Like there's, it's my, my problem with beer is that there's so much liquid for like very little bang for your buck. And it's, yes. I mean, it's really nice on like a summer day it's, and you want to sure. drink a lot and it's very refreshing. Like if you want a lot of liquid, yeah. I mean, um, but I also like bang for my buck. And so I do too, because I don't like nice. to drink a lot of beer because yeah. I, it makes me feel really full. Yes. Yes, like, same. And I, so I can't really drink much of it. And I mean, which is fine, but which it's is fine. Like, but like, I would rather over have a period one of time. Beer. Yeah. I'd rather yeah. have one beer and yes. feel good and be good. The way, yes. Then that like having two, yeah. you know, 4% beers that mm-hmm. taste like water. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, that um, sounds delicious. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm drinking. Um, okay. So what should we discuss first? The one we loved or the one that only I loved? (laughs) Let's talk about, uh, Roxanne because it's the oldest. We'll go oldest to newest. Okay. All right. Um, okay. I'd never seen Roxanne. Had you ever seen Roxanne? Yes. Yes. I had seen Roxanne. I'd never seen this and I don't know why, because I'm a Steve Martin fan and I've seen like a lot of other movies in this like a uh, time period. I think this is probably where I've seen the most movies. Cause I used to see a lot of movies with my parents or like, yeah, that's yeah. kind of how, and like they were of, you know, it's the eighties yeah. era. Yeah. So I was born in 85. And so I don't know why I haven't seen this one, I but I just, loved it. It's like now one of my top 10, like it's so yeah. good. It's really good. It's one of, I think his lesser known ones. Like it can, I, I think it kind of gets lost a little bit within like the three amigos to father of the bride timeline somehow yeah. I don't know it just kind of gets lost in the middle of a bit I, I remember my parents talking about it a lot but I don't think that they ever really watched it at home um unless it was on tv or something and then I kind of would see yeah. it in the background but I watched it for the first time as an adult um with Brian because Brian really likes it um well, but he's also then. Brian has he's good also taste. Brian is super funny because when we watched it um over the weekend, I was really excited. And he's like, Ugh, like Roxanne, like, are we really going to watch it? And I was like, what are you talking about? I watched this movie for the first time because you just put it on because you like it so much. What are you, why are you acting not excited? And he's like, yeah, but I, you know, like I was in a Roxanne phase. And I'm like, what do you mean you were in a Roxanne phase? And I was like, yeah, I watched it like 50 times within two years. Like I've watched this movie a lot because he loves it so much. So he overdid it, but he still watched it and he still laughed and he still enjoyed it because it's a classic movie. It's really good. It's so good. Yeah, I just loved it. I think it's funny because I I think it kind of like fixed the issues that you had with the play in the sense that it really leaned into like the one tone a bit. I yes. don't know. Do you feel like that? And they also obviously built on Roxanne a lot more as a character. That helped that helped a lot. I liked Roxanne's character. Like mm-hmm. I liked that she was 
Like, I love the scene where, I mean, it's like so silly and kind of sweet and like borderline sappy, but it's like so funny that it's fine to me. Yeah. Like, yeah. cause like that's part of why I don't like romantic comedies. I mean, we've talked about this before. Like yeah. I'm not a big like romantic comedy or ro- like romantic movie in general person. Like I often find it, I, I just don't like it. And that probably yeah. says more about me than anything, but like, I don't like right. those movies. Yeah. And, but I liked this because it was very sweet and romantic and like true lovey and, and all of those things that normally I'm just like, ugh. But it was so funny. And I like, again, that he's this character that's like super witty and charming because of how like smart and charming and funny he is, but also like a good person. Yeah, like he's a good person and, in the community. He, it, and he seemed very respectful mm-hmm. and in awe of her for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like because she, and she got more depth and a lot of her depth was she was really funny and she was very witty and very like strong and intelligent and like not a, like she just, I think had a lot of, I thought she was a great character. I really liked that Roxanne, but I love the scene where she gets locked out. I know. She's trying beginning. to get her cat. Yeah. I mean, that's so ridiculous. You're, you're, a robe gets caught and so you're like naked because you're trying to get like it's all so silly but it was just funny and she played it so well and I love where he like walks out of the firehouse and they're like do you need any help or something and he's like nope like right <laughs> because he doesn't want to bring attention to the fact that she's like in a vulnerable yeah. position he's just like a right. good sweet person that it wasn't like oh a, I'm gonna take advantage it was yes. a like he's a first like, responder yeah. you really feel safe with Yes, it was really sweet, and how we, and I love the acrobatic stuff. Like, and kind of, it's I very that was, slapstick. Like, yes. the the comedy. Um, I like that it brings in. It's it's yes, like those acrobatics that he has, especially with like getting into the house and like getting mm-hmm. around and jumping around, and, and at the beginning where he encounters those two drunks. And like yes. fights them in the street in a really right. funny way. I love way. that that's like the sword fight. Yes. yes. The the birds on the nose. Yes. Like, and there's that line in the play. And um, yeah, really f- just funny. Like, and I love the scene in the bar Me where too. they're like upping the insults. Because it was a really good setting for that too. And like, mm-hmm. it, it felt, was very, it was well done. It was funny. It felt like a really good homage and like you could tell that Steve Martin himself has a really good appreciation and like loves that play for for like the comedic elements that are in it like the wordplay is incredible it's very um like you can imagine in many ways the way that Cyrano moves even though it's mostly just talked about as in like a passing event or this event happened in between scenes or something like that um, but I love the way that it's referred to. Um, yeah, I, that, I thought so movie. too. Like homage is a perfect word. I thought it was a really great homage for it. And, and I liked that it was a happy ending. I did too. I liked that it was a happy ending. I think that there, it's cute. I also like that, you know, Christian isn't, um, or he's, he's really I just like called it. Chris. Like he's not a bad yeah. guy, but you can see that he is himself like, his interest in Roxanne is pretty shallow and yeah. it's not just that he's like a bumbling fool. It's just that he's just kind of doesn't have that deeper connection to her in general. So it, there's yeah. never and this like, big no, like pick me nothing moment. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah. yeah like he's not a bad guy. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, sometimes it's just not that way. Sometimes it's more lust than like true deep connection. And it doesn't mean you're like necessarily objectifying her. 
mm-hmm. but like that's kind of all you're focusing on and that doesn't really sustain. So it's like a good thing that then you found someone else who was at that same point in what mm-hmm. they were looking for. And then you can drive off happily into the sunset and that couple can get together and it's really sweet. I think it was, it was really cute. I really liked the set design too, like of where Me it was, too. where it was filmed was really nice, but also just seeing like, like Cyrano's house. Like I loved yeah, his house. Yeah, I liked it too. And yeah, the, it was very, it's like they gave the characters a lot of depth mm-hmm. with little things like the house or that he's a fireman. Yeah. First like, responder. Which was a fun, it was also a fun interpretation of like, them as soldiers you know um I thought that was fun because they're all just kind of bumbling and he's just like trying to train them and also like wait like there's not a lot that happens right like they never the big thing is they've never actually had to like really do anything Mm -hmm. and I don't know maybe that's like overanalyzing it but like a lot of times like that's there's a lot of like waiting around and like just being prepared, but like not having like some people that's like how, well, a lot of, a lot of places, I don't know, from what I've observed in my life. It totally is like that, especially for small communities. Like a lot of it, you need those people there for when stuff happens, but a lot of it is not like nonstop action. Yeah. And there's not, um, a lot of opportunities for like, to get experience it's always like until like something wrong happens and nowadays like I feel like fire departments are responding to like more things because they're usually like EMS people at the same time it's like everybody kind of responds to certain things so they're responding to a lot of like a a larger variety than just like fires Um, but I kind of thought it was funny just the way that they were all just waiting and training for an event to happen for like yeah. this thing. But then nothing like particularly big happens except for the one building that gets set on fire. But then, you know, they succeed and they like tame the fire and they like, I know. And it's like training. a cute scene. It's so yeah. cute. It's I thought like it was, it was, it was like very believably cute in like, that's what like romantic comedy life would be like. Like if you, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like everyone's had those, those funny thoughts where it's like, what if life was like a musical, you know, yes. or like what would that? And so I think it was like believably cute like that. Like there really wasn't any bad, you know, it There's was like, no bad it just people. was all very happy. There's no was, villains. Yeah, it was just all very happy. Yeah. yeah. I liked it. I liked it too. Um, I hated Cyrano. <gasps> okay. Tell me. Um, I thought the music was actual garbage. Like, I thought it was trash. I thought it was awful. And the thing is, is I understand that the the people who wrote it, so uh, it's the the main two people, I can't re- I cannot remember their actual names, but it's the national. And that's a band that I like, but I thought the music was actual trash. Like it was cringy to me. like, I cringed listening to some of the songs and I don't know, maybe it's, I mean, I love Peter Dinklage. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think singing is his like strong suit. Exactly. And that's fine Yeah, because like, no, I don't think I don't expect I think he had a great voice. Yeah. Like I don't expect everybody to like have incredible voices when they're in, in like a movie like that. But I, um, 
I just thought none of the songs were like memorable. I think I would have liked it a lot more if it wasn't a musical. I don't know. I th I just I think that the stuff in the play is beautiful enough that you don't need these songs that feel felt almost like subpar to me mm. to compete with it. It was it was just kind of odd to me. I can see. Okay, like I'm not changing how I feel about it, but I can definitely see like you you particularly loved the language in the play. Like we talked about that a lot last yeah. time. And I think it's all beautiful too, but for, I didn't hit me quite the same as it hit you, which yeah. like, that's, what's great about that. Right. Yeah. Um, so for you, I can definitely see why that would be a major turnoff because they did kind of abandon a lot of that language and replaced it mm -hmm. with like song and kind of the choreography of that kind of the making it a musical yeah. to, to really get that across. And I can see why, especially if you really loved the pros would like that, how that could ruin it for you. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, I, but I will say like, there were things I liked about it. Like I liked that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it was smart to make, uh, Cyrano's physical, uh, quote unquote problem in the relationship, um, his dwarfism. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was clever because I think one of the, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's, mm, actually maybe I don't like you, do it. Do you feel like, <laughs> I think it could go either way. I think it could be, I think, I think kind of the point is, is that like, that's a real, that's like, that's more real to me than like someone with a note, like. Yeah, but I, I guess I kind of, the more I think about it, the more I liked the fact that Cyrano's problem is kind of ambiguous in the sense that you don't know if it really is a problem with anybody other than himself. Whereas we all know that like historically little people have been like, I mean, literally treated like pets. So See, and I almost like that better because I feel like for me where it's like maybe it's an, just a who knows if his nose really is abnormally large. Like, let's say it they're wanting you to think of it as like Steve Martin's and Roxanne. Yeah. That's so unbelievable. Yeah. Like or so much less likely. So part of me is like, really, you're that worried that you're that ugly? Like, yeah. Versus someone yeah. who has like versus Peter Dinklage, who. I mean, I think he's a very attractive man. He is. Yes. He's very and handsome. like, and, but like I can, but that's probably much more likely of a, of not a common opinion. Does that make sense? Am I saying that right? Like there's so much discrimination. So like, it's so believable yes. that he would, he would he has totally a lot more doubt to actually overcome. And he like, yes, he does and have be more to understandably prove. worried about. So it's more like, yeah, I get why that's so hard for you easier than like you maybe be unattractive. Cause to me, I feel like most men are far less worried about what they look like and it has mattered far less. And it has certainly never prevented men from like getting whatever woman they want necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so that it's like really you just I don't know no I, I think, it seems more serious to me and that yes. I think lended to more of the tragedy for me yeah like, I think I think you're right with that like if you look at the the physical issue as um the actual like that this is the problem 
I like that. I like, I think metaphorically more having an ambiguous sure. issue because I think that's more relatable. Like I think that adds to it too. And we talked about that. I yeah. agree. Like, I think that the, the idea that maybe none of this was ever really a problem and Cyrano makes it a problem by constantly bringing right. it up or constantly yes. being se- like sensitive to it or assuming that this is what people are thinking about him. Like, I think that's very human and yeah. that the, the stuff that we're most self-conscious about, like, people probably aren't even thinking about um Mm -hmm. but I agree also that um like I think it literally makes more sense for it to be something actually uh like ostracizing as an individual in society where you would have to overcompensate a little bit or like that the expectations would be so low that you have to constantly feel like to be accepted by these people or to be like treated with any kind of respect, you have to like go harder at it. Yeah. At, at, at other yeah. things that you think will get you respect in those spaces. So like with Cyrano yeah. in the movie Cyrano and in the play, he has to be the best at combat and he has to be the best at wordplay and he has to do mm-hmm. all of those things. Yeah. So that he is not, treated disres- like treated poorly and I think also yep. like it's um obviously Roxanne is set in the 80s it's in modern times um but having the play the musical set at the same time of the play um adds a level to that as well but it but it's also kind yeah. of like if you think about the way that little people were really being treated back then like they were like court props and gesture like like they were gestures they were treated really 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 poorly historically right by especially like royal society and by the elite and so that adds adds like a layer to yeah um that I think it adds some yeah I I think so too like it but it, but it I added also, to it for me. But I also think um, that it complicates it at the same time because, you know, with, with Cyrano and, like, his nose and the fact that it's ambiguous, his isolation is um, more, like, of an inner struggle, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I would have been interested to see like how other little people were portrayed though like if there were like other little people in the musical and for him to interact with because like it's a genetic issue so like I I don't know like it was also kind of weird that he was the only little person in the whole musical to me like I would have been interested to see how he would have reacted to seeing another person like him in the in the musical yeah, I don't really have any opinion on that. That doesn't. Ha- that's not anything that I'm like worried about or thinking about. Yeah, I mean that makes sense though. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a. It's just interesting to see the way they change it. I will say that one thing I did like about the movie was that I thought the way that they they had to rewrite basically a lot of these clever puns. Right. That were because of because of the yeah, difference. He couldn't in be talking issue. about his nose. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I think that they did a really good job at it. I thought it the the way that they rewrote that stuff was very cleverly written and um was effective and and 
fit the tone. Yeah, I, the I liked the theater scene a lot, like where he's mm-hmm. introduced and how it's like from off stage and like the wordplay there while they're fencing. Like I liked that a lot. What else did you hate? Honestly, like the music, I just think really ruined it for that, me. That makes, it totally makes sense. Like I, even just the whole, the fact that they don't have this, the dialogue yeah. isn't enough of what was in the play. I can totally see how that would be a turnoff for you. Like, um, I, I that's just part of why I don't like modern stuff of Shakespeare enough where it's yes. like, where it's true. Like if you're going to have it be like this period piece, Mm-hmm. have it be the period piece. If you're going to have it be modern, have it be modern, modern. Yeah. So in some ways. Like, if that makes sense. Like, it's kind of like why Bridgerton sucks. Like, kind of. Like, I went and saw, I remember when I was in college, I took a, a summer course on Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And we also went and saw plays because, you know, the Old Globe Theater there does Shakespeare all year round and it's whatever. But we went and saw one that wasn't done at the Old Globe and it was, I can't remember what the theater company was, but they did like a modern setting where like, you know, they like had a convertible. It was like done in this like kind of warehousey thing. Mm-hmm. But then the language was like Shakespearean, was true to the play. So it's like, and you, I didn't like that either. I don't like the mm-hmm. juxtaposition. Like, So do you not like the Romeo plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet? With the one with Leo. Leonardo DiCaprio? Mm-hmm. Not my favorite, like, it's not the worst one I've seen. It doesn't drive me totally crazy, but I don't like it as much. Yeah. No. Like it, yeah. And I don't have a good reason why. It's just like personal taste. No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. It can, it can make things not make sense a little bit. Like I, I think the, there's a, we talked about it actually when we read Hamlet for the podcast and we watched the um recorded production with Patrick Stewart and David Tennant do you remember doing that yeah but I don't remember what comment you're talking about well just how it's it's modern like it's modern but they use the old language but it didn't feel extremely modern other than the fact that they had like video surveillance and they used guns instead of swords and, and like stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I thought it was, it was interesting. I don't know. I will say one other thing that I did not like about the movie Cyrano was the ending. And I felt like it was very on the nose. I don't know. Like the, like the part where, um, she's holding him as he's dying um, and like he, the fact that he dies from his like old wound from the war, but it's, you know, it's only been three years. And then also when, uh, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but his last words are basically like, and I died because of my pride and I just felt like that was silly like it was right. like they were trying to tell us the moral of the story it was it was a little heavy-handed yeah like and I and I do think that and that usually drives me crazy so I don't know why it didn't hear um because I mean that's why I don't like Spielberg um <laughs> I forgot about that I <laughs> forgot about that and you just reminded me and now I just am all worked up about it. I am I can't believe that. I still can't believe that. 
absolutely bonkers to me. You liked this movie, but you don't like Jurassic Park? (laughs) What? (laughs) Make it make sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah, I normally I can't stand that either. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just I love Peter Dinklage so much, and I loved, I liked the like musical theater ishness of it like I liked not just that there was music that it was a musical but I liked like they didn't just do song like I liked the you know where they're writing the letters and it's like the letters are falling down and it's like the different viewpoints of it and it's cheesy but like I liked it and I liked the you know where she's singing I can't remember that one song where she's walking through the streets and she's singing and like the other women kind of Brian do a little bit of a dance. Song. He watched it with me and that was his favorite song was her song. I liked that. I liked that one too. And I yeah. thought it was, um, uh, so I liked those elements of it too. And I thought I liked the costume and I liked, um, the mm-hmm. setting and I liked just like the theatricalness of it. It, that added it to me cause it made it, it added to the like, Made me feeling like I was at the theater a little bit. Yeah. More so than just a, just a, the movie. Does that make sense? It's or funny. Like- it's funny because I feel like Roxanne leans into the comedy, but I feel mm-hmm. like Cyrano really leans into the dramatics of the play. And I do too. Like I got sad. I got like teary eyed at the end of it. Oh, and- see, I did not. I thought it was overly traumatic, but like I felt nothing at the end. Like I was laughing. <laughs> like honestly, I thought it was so ridiculous. Like, I don't know why I, I can feel jokes. something in this movie, but not in, in like Spielberg movies. But okay. like I did, I was like, I was like, oh, I remember. So Kendrick watched both with me. Yeah. And he loved Roxanne too. And then he watched this one. And once he like, got on the paying attention train like <laughs> yeah. at, the, at, at the end he was like oh wow like they really because he hasn't read the play and yeah he didn't listen to see like our last episode Ugh. uh whatever uh <laughs> he doesn't listen to any of them ever neither does brian <laughs> and i told him about this new book that we're reading which oh we forgot to talk about before we started oh Ow. that's I split right. my nail oh no and i just yeah it's like and there's nothing i can really do about it because i can't cut it any shorter like it seriously like split almost down <gasps> the nail bed oh, and no. it keeps catching and I had a bandaid on it and then I don't know why it's not on there anymore but I just caught it and that hurt I'm anyway so sorry. sorry it's okay no you're good but I've been raving about the book that we're going to read next is he gonna the read it new he said he would because I was telling him I'm like this book is beautiful and I was telling him about it and like how much I enjoyed it and he's like yeah that sounds really good like I'm gonna read that I'm like bullshit like you say that we'll now see. But don't, yeah, don't, don't You're give me false hope. It. Don't give me false hope. Like, I don't even believe I have no hope. But anyway, uh, why did I just bring that up? Oh, because he was watching the movie. So once he started paying attention to Cyrano, he loved Roxanne. But once you guys were watching Cyrano, what? Yeah. Was, he was like, oh, this is, this is a tragedy. Like, <laughs> and he's like, is the play like that? And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's like a romantic comedy slash tragedy because like yeah you know he dies in the play too and she's like oh because you know roxanne is obviously very happy and he's like oh very different interpretation <laughs> but i was like well yeah. kind of like i think it's nice is that roxanne i feel like was just as true to the play Cyrano de bergiac yeah. as Cyr- regardless of if you liked it or not i think it was still true to like a major it's like they just both took very different elements of it and were very true to those elements like yeah 
which it was some way it was, it was nice because that's, it's a lot to get the same, like everything the same out of, I feel like a play when you do those amount of changes, you know, mm-hmm. where it's not like, does that make sense where, mm-hmm. no, I think, where I think you're, you're it's, right. It's hard. It's a lot to convey. And so I think it's best to stick, kind of pick one element of it and do that one really well versus yeah. trying to do all of it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair, especially with this play. It's hard. I mean, I think that, um, I think that this is, would be easier to do on the stage. Like stage acting, acting is so different than film, you know? So maybe like you can stick to and have both of those elements on a, in a stage production. I've never watched one. Um, unfortunately, of Cyrano de Bergerac. But I think with the movie, they yeah. had to pick a lane. And because um, it's also, it's hard enough to convince people to go to the to movies. But can you imagine like watching a trailer of the play and having both comedy and tragedy in it to that extent that it is in mm-hmm. the play? Like, I think it would be confusing for an audience to, to know what they're getting into when they go to see the movie, unless they pick a lane. And um, I think that they, yeah. I mean, I like I liked seeing two different interpretations of the story and two different like ways to go with it. Um, and I am glad I watched the movie. I just didn't like it that much. I just thought yeah. the music was so bad. And I will say, like, I also... Um, one element that like I really like about the character Cyrano is that I felt like in the play that he developed at by the end because of like Christian's bravery and also his I think Christian had genuine love for Roxanne and the way that he wanted her to choose and like wanted her to be honest and wanted to be honest to her and give her the chance to have a choice. Um, I felt like in the play that there was more of a genuine loyalty to Christian and his memory than there was in the movie. Like in the movie, it just felt like he was too scared to tell her the truth and that Mm -hmm. it wasn't about in any way honoring her mourning or honoring Christian at all. Um, It felt like it was more of, of him being scared and still like they plug at the end of him being prideful and too proud to be vulnerable with her or something like that and I felt like in the play at the end it was that he genuinely had like a friendship and love for Christian as well yeah yeah I think so too like I I definitely liked this Christian character almost better like I enjoyed him more than I did in the play oh really I mean I guess mm, I thought the Christian character was a good representation of what was in the play, but I didn't like their relationship as much in the movie as I did in the play. Like I thought Cyrano and Christian developed a genuine relationship in the play versus in the movie. Well, maybe I think that, I mean, obviously I think that's true because like there's no way you could show that development as well in the movie as 
you do in the play. So, but I think because it did such a good job of like the play does that so well that I kind of just went into it with that feeling of their relationship. Yeah. 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 And like even Roxanne, while I didn't get the sense that they were like genuinely had as deep of a friendship, I did get the sense that like CD like just was a good guy and really cared for him and wanted the best. Like he still, nothing Mm -hmm. was ever like that all felt believable. Um, Mm -hmm. so that didn't even ruin, you know what I mean? Like, while it wasn't as like tragic as I think it still did a good job with that. So I think I just kind of kept that feeling about the relationship all the way around. So I kind of went into the movie Cyrano, like they didn't have to convince me kind of a thing. So they didn't like, so, but I can see if you didn't necessarily like, obviously it didn't do that work. The play did the work for it. Yeah. I did. I did really like the actor who played Christian and I thought he had probably well I mean the actress who played Roxanne has a beautiful voice but I think that his voice was really great and I thought Mm -hmm. um I just I thought he was really well cast um as Christian as being like this kind of young you know buckler kind of a character and I also thought that their like um intensity for each other in that moment, like when they first see each other in the theater, I thought that was captured really well. Yeah. Um, I also really like that the actress who played Roxanne, um, wasn't like 18 years old or something. Like it really, it really drives me crazy when the actors are really far in age from each other and she looks very young, but I mean, Mm -hmm. that girl's been around for a while. I think she's like in her late thirties or something. Um, yeah, but she just, she has that, that like Anna Taylor joy yes. kind of look where she just is very like these very kind of doll features. Yes. Very youthful. And like looks very young. Yeah. It's funny. I haven't seen her in anything, um, except for music and lyrics. Did you ever watch that movie with Hugh Grant uh-uh. and Drew Barrymore? It it's, sounds, it's a romantic I know comedy. What movie you're, I know what movie you're talking about. I did not watch it. Well, actually I think I've seen it on a plane and I didn't like it. Oh, I let, I thought it was really funny, but it's also not your genre either way. Um, it's not. Like I said, I do not like, I seriously, the, Roxanne is like, like the only one I can think <laughs> of at this moment. Maybe there's more if someone named it, but like, I can't even think of it. So obviously they're not that big of a like impact obviously. versus I can name plenty of other movies. Anyway, continue. Right. Um, well, the actress who plays Roxanne in Cyrano is in that movie and she plays like a, a pop star who she's supposed to evoke Shakira slash... Britney Spears, you know, like that's kind of who she's supposed to be. So it's, it's just really funny because I hadn't seen her in anything since watching that movie. And, um, she clearly has a great voice because she sings in both of them. Um, so she was, she was fun. And I also liked, uh, the fact that the, oh gosh, Degish is more of a villain like that. Degish doesn't really exist at all in the, um, yeah in the yeah. in Roxanne and then he's like mostly just kind of mentioned and more just like this background shadowy figure but he's really p- kind of played out and uh stretched out a little bit more heavily in uh the movie Cyrano yeah I agree and like he was very nef- like he definitely seemed like evil and nefarious oh yeah like, to me that's part of what I liked about it too like it's the letter like and how it's done of of like you know, I'm coming over and either way, like, right. Because when you read the play, it, it's almost like funny. 
Like, oh, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's a priest and they're going to get married and it's like kind of funny. And then when you watch the movie, it's very clear that that was nobody's choice. And yeah, she's doing And I it. thought that was probably more realistic of like what actually happened in yes. like of, of the time period. And like, so yeah, I, not that I liked that, but I thought that added to it for me. Yeah, it added pressure too as far as like why they got married so quickly and then um like I mean it's pretty clear that when they're sent to the front it's a revenge because she gets married in the play like that's that's all ha- that all happens in the play but yeah there's so much more time spent in the movie about that scene and and everything that um makes it tougher like you just feel a bit more for Roxanne and and like the position that she's in as a as a young woman in that kind of situation who needs to get married is in a financial situation where she definitely needs to get married she feels obligated in a lot of ways to kind of like indulge this man and in these kind of smaller fantasies, you know, giving him attention, um, kind of making him think that they're headed towards a certain ending for each other. Um, yeah. That, and that, that pressure, I think, makes a lot more sense in the movie than it does in the play. It's, it's more understated in the play. Um, but I think that that is a, an important element in understanding Roxanne and, and the, the things that she's dealing with. It's another way to further develop the character in a different way. I agree. But it also kind of like makes her, I don't know, makes her love for Christian confusing. I don't know, because, because there's also this feeling like, I feel like it just lessens her marriage to Christian. I, I can see why you think that I just, I feel like, and I think it kind of, and maybe this comes from the play too, but I kind of liked the interpretation because it gave me the sense of it didn't take away from her relationship to Christian for me. Mm-hmm. It explained, it's almost like there's part one and part two, mm-hmm. right? And like, she probably always, and I believe her that she's always loved Cyrano, but like love means different things at different stages of your life too. And sometimes it's not always with the same person. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, and it doesn't take away from the genuineness of her love with Christian just because it's just as genuine with Cyrano. Like he, he was always there, right? Like she got there and it's just as real and it doesn't diminish just because she had this other thing can be just as genuine. And it's like you, you change through loss. Yeah. Right. Like, and the movie, I feel like really like, and the play, like there's, you get her loss with like Christian's debt. Like it's, so I think, you're going to be a different person and that doesn't take away from the person you were before or mean it was bad. It's just, you're different now and that can open you mm-hmm. up to different views on love or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, um, Hmm. So this is, a, this was an interesting element of the movie and I'm wondering if you picked up on it as well. I feel like in the play, there's more of a, sense that she just genuinely does not understand that Cyrano has feelings for her yes but in the movie I feel like there's a willful ignorance to her like I felt like she knew it was Cyrano 
like the whole time, like the way that she, when, when she tells him, for example, that she's in love with Christian and it's that moment where he like thinks she's going to tell him that she's in love with him and you think it's going to go that other direction. I feel like she's, she was way more uncomfortable with that conversation in the movie than she ever is in the play. Like I never get the sense that she's picking up on his disappointment in a, in a genuine understanding mm. that she's disappointing him by saying she's in love with somebody else kind of way. And in the movie, yeah. I felt like she definitely understood that that's what was going on. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And that was, that was just an interesting, um, I don't know. It was just, it was just interesting, but it almost kind of made me like her less. It, it was weird. Cause it was like, okay, I I had so many moments where I was like, okay, you know, Sarah Nell feels this way about you. Or even in the balcony scene, I feel like, I felt like she was much more conscious of the fact that it was somebody else speaking, you know, like it, there was this hesitancy mm. to her and the way maybe the, just the actress played it to me that I interpreted it as her acknowledging and understanding that somebody else was talking to her, but she didn't want to acknowledge it or something like it felt like she was willfully ignoring it at certain times when it felt so obvious. And it's always, See, I didn't get that sense. Really? Okay. I didn't get that sense, but I did get the sense that she seemed, meaning I didn't get the sense that she thought like she understood that there was like someone else talking, mm -hmm. but I think that, I agree that there is more of a play to she kind of is aware that Cyrano has feelings for her. Mm -hmm. But, and I, I almost, I, I kind of also thought that in the play, I don't think it necessarily portrays that, but I just kind of like made that assumption. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because I'm like, well, yeah, if she's a beautiful woman, she's probably used to people being interested in her or giving her attention. Mm -hmm. So, and not like in a bad or manipulative way, but just like, yeah, that's just how it well, goes. I mean, like not I, thinking much of it. I, I get that. I feel like it's hard because there's one way in the play of looking at her kind of declaration of love for him at the end. And we talked about this last time as being more of a peace offering and more of like, a, right. you're already dying in my arms. So I guess I'll tell you that I love you and I loved you all along. Yeah. Like there is a, a, a world where you, you can, can interpret do it, it that way. Like yeah. That. Um, and in the movie, it felt like she was really genuinely saying that she did love him the whole time. But if that were the case, then like, why was that never a version of their relationship that she seemed super willing to explore from the beginning? Cause she always knew that he was talented and he was smart and he was strong and he was brave and he was all of these things. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think it just is, um, it was less clear to me of like, okay, are we saying that she's vain, that she, she does have these like issues with just wanting to be with somebody who she thinks is really attractive and witty, but they have to be attractive. They can't just be witty or, right. um, like what is her real hang up here with Cyrano? So like, I, th I thought it was a little bit more 
confusing. And both both versions are ambiguous, but one version makes me like the character less <laughs> than the other. I don't know. It's weird. It's just so interesting yeah. how like all these different productions and versions like can interpret the character and a lot of the language can be the same but just depending on how the actor portrays the story it can really change things I know that's what I think is like seriously so fun about do like I was saying before we started recording that I we should do these not more often necessarily but like Mm -hmm. make sure we do more of these because it's fun to do the play and then see the movies like Especially um, when you have two drastically different movies like this to compare it to. Yeah. And it just feels like such a different interpretation of the text. It's, it was really fun. Yeah, I agree. I really liked it. So good good choice for sure. Thank you. Um, you want to know a wild fact that I just found out a couple days ago? Yes. yes. Is that Cyrano de Bergerac was a real person? Oh, you didn't know that? No, I had no idea until I wikipedia oh. it. Like, I had no yeah. idea that Cyrano was a real person. I don't know that much about him, but I just, rem- I know it was, like, based, like, not the story was necessarily, but, like, the character was based on a real person. Yeah, I had no idea. Although I've heard he's a, he was a gambler. At least that's what Wikipedia tells me, is that he was maybe a li- mm. little less charming than our own Cyrano de Bergerac that we've come to know and love, but um, yeah. the kind of gallantry and ostentatiousness of, like, the, the characters is based on a real person. I had no idea. I think that's really fun. I I, I like watching, um, I don't know, it's fun because like, we look at this play like it's like this old historical reference, but it's like referencing something historical and in its own mind that other people at the time would have been aware of, of maybe this person having existed. It's just fun. It's just interesting. It is fun. I also, uh, there's a lot of like talk, well, there's some talk that, um, Word on the street uh, that uh, the that um, the playwright Jesus Edmond Rostand, thank you, wrote it with a specific actor of the time oh. in mind, or like for him, and like that's part of why the character is so charming. Oh, that's like, fun. The actor, yeah, and I don't know who, but I I know that that's like a a thing or something. Oh, I like that. Like, it's, so, I don't know. I just feel like I look at plays like this sometimes and I think about it as being so long ago, but this was actually from like 1887, 1897 or something. Yeah. So this is not that old of a play. It's, I mean, it's old, but you know, it's not, this is after the civil war. Like this isn't as old as I always think of it being. And part of that is because it's written in verse. And so it was maybe a little unusual for the time and it kind of does harken back to Shakespeare a little bit because of the fact that it's written in verse. I feel like I always just associate it as being older. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I get like, I feel that way too. It is like interesting. And then when you think about when it's actually written, yeah, it'd be good to do some little bit more research on that. Oh, but I really liked it. It was really fun. I loved the play and I definitely loved doing like watching the movies with it and like i said i'm in love with roxanne that's like one of my favorite movies now I'm so and glad. while i wouldn't say cyrano is one of my favorite movies ever now like i really liked it so <laughs> it i just oh the music was just bad i don't know it, it just was bad yeah i mean it, part of it maybe is just that it just never none of it felt memorable to me like i couldn't tell you what any of the songs sounded like at this point they all sounded almost the same to me 
um, for some reason. So that that's part of why I didn't like it. I think I usually leave a musical with like actually unable to get at least one of the songs out of my head. And mm. that wasn't what I got out of this one. But I think sometimes people like that too, like without a, having to feel like a Broadway spectacle or something, but, it, uh, but it also still had those elements. I don't know. I just didn't like the music. I feel kind of bad. I, I know. I don't think you need to feel bad. Like I totally understand your, like where you're coming from. I'm not like, what did we watch the same movie? But it just like didn't affect. Yeah. Obviously it affected us in different ways, which is the cool thing about books and movies. I agree. I agree. Um, so yeah, if you guys haven't watched the movies, totally recommend. Um, and our next book that we will be doing for the next two, so we're going to be discussing parts one and two of the novel, The New Life by Tom Crew. Uh, and then the second episode will be on parts three and four. So I love this book. I'm so I cannot wait to, to talk it. about it. So go pick up a copy from your local bookstore or bookshop.org and read at least parts one and two. So you can know what the hell we're talking about. Nice. Anything else from you, Sadie? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm just, I'm glad I picked Cyrano. It's, it was a good reread and yeah. I feel like it just made me appreciate the play more. So, and I already loved the play, good but call. I hadn't read it since high school. So it was fun. Yeah. It was a really good call. It was way fun. So thank you. All righty. Okay. I was like waiting for you to say goodbye. <laughs> bye. All right. Bye everybody. Bye. <laughs> And I'm Sadie. And we are former English lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Welcome, everybody, to Lit and Libations. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Andra. Hopefully, we get it right. We have had to start and stop this recording. I don't know how many times. It's just a night of It's all right. We didn't get too far, so I think it's okay. Yeah. Um, but we are really excited uh, to talk about this debut novel by Tom Crew called The New Life. Uh, we will be discussing parts one and two in this episode and parts three and four in the second episode. So if you haven't, I really recommend you go pick up a copy of this book from your local bookstore or bookshop.org uh, and read it because honestly, this is one of, I just thought it was so beautiful. I, I texted Sadie right after I started reading it. I'm like, you are going to love this book. It's just lovely. So I can't wait to talk about it. Um, before we do that... We don't know what our next book is going to be, but we do know what we're drinking. Yes, we do. Oh my goodness. You go first. What are you? Okay. So I loved my kiwi mint Mm -hmm. concoction that I Mm -hmm. made last time. So I kind of did the same thing, but I, so I did 
uh, muddled kiwi, mint, lime juice, and a little bit of agave syrup, Mm -hmm. and then vodka, and then shook that all up, poured it into my glass, and then topped it with this lime uzu, like, soda. And it's really good. And look how pretty I put it in, like, my little kind of frosted. I love that fluted glass, like, with the... Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That's a really cute glass. Also, you know where I got this glass from? Have you ever heard of that Fab Fit Fun like yes. makeup? Yes. So I used was, to subscribe. Yeah. I used to subscribe. I actually loved the, getting those boxes. It was so fun. Yeah. I do that and this these two glasses were in one of the boxes. I don't remember which one it was. Oh nice. I don't remember if it was an add-on or not, but so yeah, I really like them though. They're super cute. Um, Also, I have to just kind of freak out a little bit because um, we're both doing a lime and uzu soda based drink. (gasps) Is it the is it the fever tree? Yes. Yes. So we we like we are almost drinking. Yours is way like fancier than mine, but we both used that in our drinks today. So I'm having like I don't feel like that's ever happened before. I don't think it ever has either. Um, So. I am doing kind of like a play on a gin and tonic, but instead of using traditional tonic, I'm using the fever tree lime and uzu um, sparkling water. And it's very delicious. I wanted to go with a gin drink because this is like an English book. And I'm like, okay, if they're not like drinking pints of beer, they're probably drinking something gin based. So, Yeah, exactly. I know I was going to do like a Pim's cup or something, Mm. but I just liked what I had what I had last time so no, much and I had so kiwi and, and I didn't want my kiwi to go because Kendrick's the other one that eats a lot of kiwi in our house and he hasn't been here for a couple days and so mm-hmm. the I don't want the kiwi to go bad um so that's why I did that but I'm really sounds it. delicious and it looks super cute super super cute yeah. those glasses I yeah it was a good call um okay well should we get into it yeah I want to definitely get into it so um in a you know, take three of four when we started this podcast, you talked about how, um, like we're breaking it up because it's an easy book to read, but it's like pretty long. And I wanted to, one of the first things that really I've enjoyed about this book is every sentence and every kind of thought seems so important. Yes. And nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And so no, it's not like a difficult book to read, but at the same time, I like, I don't felt, I didn't feel like I could like really skim it. And I felt like I really wanted to take my time digesting the words that it was saying, because this book is extremely like intellectual and philosophical. And so I felt like it was a philosophical and like reasoning exercise reading a lot of this book and in the most beautiful way. I loved it. It's one of my favorite things about it. Yes. It's, it's such an intricate novel. Um, so just a little bit of backstory. Mm-hmm. And this is nice because the author, Tom Crew, kind of includes the, some of the historical um, facts mm-hmm. uh, that the novel is based on. So the novel is fiction, but some of its characters and events uh, have counterparts in history. So the two main characters are John and Henry, and they are loosely based on John Addington Simmons, who lived from 1840 to 1893, and Havelock Ellis, who lived from 1859 to 1939. So in the early 1890s, they wrote a book together called Sexual Inversion. And this book did get into trouble with the law, and it was after Oscar Wilde's imprisonment, 
But the authors never met, even though in the novel they do Mm -hmm. meet. Um, And the book was published in 1897, which was four years after Simmons' death. That's not what happens in the book. Yeah. Um, Simmons was married to a woman called Catherine, and Ellis was married to a writer called Edith, who was attracted to other women, which is also what happens in the book, or that that does happen in the book. Um, So they are real characters, um, and the author goes into more of what happened, and he also provides a lot of additional reading material, which... I love, um, but the, but it's fiction. Uh, but the mm-hmm. gist of this story is it's the summer of 1894. John Addington and Henry Ellis begin collaborating on a book about sexual inversion or being a homosexual. And the book is to point out or is to make the like scientific argument that it's natural, harmless, and should also be decriminalized because at this time period in England, it is a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John, he's wealthy. He lives pretty much off of the fortunes of like his family. Yeah. His he, father he lives has off made. of like the interest of their um, investments. Yeah. Um, and he's a scholar. So he's also like a writer, writes journally scholars, uh, scholarship. He has three grown daughters. Uh, I believe two of them are married. One's starting to go to Cambridge for school. And he's married to a woman named Catherine who we come to understand has come to like just kind of accept his attractions to men, but mm-hmm. wants it to not be out. It's kind of those like, don't ask, don't tell yeah. sort of a situation in their life. Um, he, uh, anyway, I'll move on. And then Henry is younger. He has a medical background and he's a member of a group called the society of the new life. And that's kind of this group that talks about, basically a new, the new life, like the changes that should happen, uh, not only with homosexuality, but with women's rights. Yeah. It's um, like a a social, a social justice group kind of in, in this, it's almost like they're an intellectual society that discusses and proposes ideas for a new society and, Mm -hmm. um, new societal standards that are more, um, equal and, open and, you know, kind of, um, idealistic. Yes. And he marries a woman named Edith, who is also a part of the society of the new life, um, who is attracted to women and, uh, they intend to have this kind of new freer kind of marriage. They don't live together. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not like a Woody Allen, Mia Farrow situation. It's just like for, this is what they've decided to do. And he's very supportive of her. She has a relationship with another woman. They collaborate. They're kind of like best friends. Um, but it becomes harder for him. He kind of gets a little slighted when she starts to spend more time with a certain friend than him, but not, we'll, we'll talk about that. more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they collaborate via writing for quite a while about this book. And then as we'll discuss more in the second episode, they eventually meet in person things kind of Mm -hmm. roll from there. Um, Bringing up now, because it does, I'm trying to remember if it gets brought up in part one or two, but um, in real life, in this time period, Oscar Wilde is arrested and put on trial uh, for homosexuality, basically. And that story is really interesting, too, and everything that happened and people he paid off and blackmail. But basically, he was put in prison for being a gay man. We talked about Um, it a little bit more at length when we did The Importance of Being Earnest. Yeah, I love the tie-in. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, so it, that's a good and, uh, precursor to, to reading this novel. Yes. If you haven't listened to that episode or, or uh, read that play or seen a production of that play, um, we definitely recommend it because I think a lot of the themes in the one that we already discussed and then obviously it, as in as a podcast, we got a little bit more into Oscar Wilde's history, but it's important here yes. to this book as well. Very. Um, so the novel opens up with kind of alternating perspectives. Um, first with John Addington, like you said, he's kind of this wealthy scholar. He's a closet homosexual. And then he kind of, you know, has had a few instances over time where he's uh, interacted with men, but pretty right off the bat, really in the novel, he gets involved with a much younger working class man named Frank. I loved Frank. I love Frank. Um, and then it kind of goes to Henry and his wedding to Edith. Um, and then their, her relationship with Angelica, who they meet on their honeymoon. And mm-hmm. Angelica and Edith kind of become this couple. And then their stories just kind of unfold. And it's, it's, it's slow. Um, like... 100 pages in when their fates kind of begin to intersect. Yeah. So John has read some of Henry's work. Henry writes to learn, or he writes Henry to learn about Henry's thoughts on, quote, Greek feeling or anything to do with, um, oh my God, the poet. Uh, Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman. And kind of it's like this way of testing the waters, right? Yeah, to be it's like, this, what do it's, you... it's so interesting reading this book because a lot of their correspondence and like a lot of these conversations are so coded, right? So mm-hmm. that if anybody did, you know, somehow get their letters, it, they wouldn't necessarily think too much of it or read too much into it because when they're talking about gay love, um, homosexual homosexuality, they're pretty much referring it to it as like camaraderie or manly love or mm-hmm. um, the Greek love. Um, and so it is kind of coded and they're kind of trying to test the safety of the other person to have this conversation about. And um, it's interesting too, because you see that play out also in interactions with people um, as they meet throughout the novel. So like when Frank and John first approach each other at the park, it's pretty obvious to us readers because we can see like what's going on in John's head and, and his attraction to the men that he's seeing at the park. But, um, the actual words that they're saying to each other are so coded because it's, it's dangerous to have these conversations and there's like concern that people would try to hurt you, you know, like it's just interesting seeing how their coded language is back then and how they were trying to talk about these things, um, without putting themselves too much at risk. Yeah. And I love the letter, right? Like, honestly, this book doesn't have an intense amount of like overly dramatic plot points, Mm -hmm. but he like crew does such a good job of like giving you the interior of John and Henry. Yes. And just that builds this like intrigue and development without really there being much plot. No. Like a lot of it is that, I mean, they, they write to each other. They agree to work on the book. You, you get John and Frank's burgeoning relationship, which I loved reading. You mm-hmm. get um, 
you know, Henry and Edith's relationship and Angelic. So there's lots of like just these internal and not dialogues, but like internal looks into all of these characters and just like this lovely examination of their relationship, which I thought was nice that it doesn't, it's not, um, super dramatic in a way that it could have been. It's like, it doesn't need to be. Well, it just feels, it just feels normal. Like I, I feel like part of what the novel is trying to argue and what a lot of these characters are trying to argue is that this love between men and women, um, of this, like members of the same sex, like it, it should be treated kind of the same with the same sense of normalcy as any other kind of like romantic feeling. And I liked the, like, yes, nothing much happens, but I think also we get a deeper analyzation of these characters because they themselves are always kind of analyzing themselves and their impulses yeah. and they're mm-hmm. intrigued by their own impulses and the impulses of others and, and society at large. And so a lot of kind of the descriptions, for example, like pretty much from the get go when John is at the park and he's observing, um, some men in the pond and, um, throughout the park, really it's very, um, sexual, like the feelings that he's feeling, the attraction that he's feeling. And it's, but it's also kind of mundane. It's not that any of these events are very erotic in nature. It's just that they are, I I just liked this like very subtle, but analytical like look at human sexuality and how, um, I don't know, just normal and everyday and like, you know, it just, it was beautiful. Like it wasn't, it wasn't hypersexualized. It wasn't like gross. It didn't feel lewd by any means of like, oh my God, everything's sexual. But it, like, I liked the subtle bits of um, eroticism in it where it was just like the way that someone's folding their legs or something is attractive to somebody else. And like, I like, because I think that is true. I think it's like those subtle things is where attraction mm-hmm. starts for everybody. And um, I liked how these characters looked at themselves um, when they are noticing these things and they're kind of logging it into their brain and, and really thinking about their behavior. And it's uh, um, different than I think the way most of us engage in just everyday behavior because we don't have to think about it that much, but, uh, but it, it's also a testament to these characters and just kind of their curiosity and, and, um, logical reasoning that they're always kind of trying to work through. I agree. And I loved, okay. So one of my other favorite parts of this book, there's so many, so I feel like I'm jumping all around was mm-hmm. the, like the other characters. So like, mm-hmm. I love John's daughters, um, and they're not in it much, but Janet, get a little Janet's bit pretty fun. Like Janet's yes. the younger one who's going to Cambridge. She gets quite a bit of time. And I, I mean, we'll talk more about Catherine in the second think part, I think. But, um, so, uh, John also has a friend named Mark who is also a, a sexual invert, but he mm-hmm. is in no way going to like act on it, talk about it, mm-hmm. really even acknowledge it. He is also married Uh, John met him at school, has like shared things with him. Like Mark knows about John and John knows about Mark, but it's like Mark is more of the, we just will not even talk about this. Like, what are you doing? And he just is aghast when he realizes who Frank is to John. And like John basically moves Frank into his home 
am under the guise of he's like my secretary while I'm writing this book. Frank has his own bedroom that John goes to every evening and just leaves before the house staff like wakes up. So they're living this way with his wife. And so it's in, it's in part two, um, right. The first chapter of part two. So it's chapter 13 and Mark, Mark's just kind of asking him like, who is like, who is this? Why do you have this person here? Mm -hmm. You know, how can you? And he says, I love him. I desire him. Can you bear to hear that? And, and it says, Mark leaned against the lip of John's desk. His suit seemed to hang off him, not to touch flesh. John saw there were mud spatters up his trouser legs. Dozens of small round spots dried the color of ash. And he, and I just, I don't know. I just love these subtle, it's like, when these big things happen, right, sometimes those little small details are what just, like, pop out for some strange reason. So it's, like, Mark's clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he he goes on to to talk with him about it. And then John, it says, John suppressed a desire to snap back in shock. It wasn't even that. His desire, almost physical, to speak of what he and Frank had done were doing. He worried that his experiences would not be fully legible until then, even to himself. He wished to make them permanent, whole, to give them a place in the world. Everyday memories tugged fiercely for release. Words, details, salivated on his tongue. He imagined sitting Catherine down and forcing her to listen to it all come drooling out. There was a part of him that resented her for tolerating Frank's presence in the house, even as he delighted in it. He sometimes feared she did not truly understand what it was she tolerated. He wanted her to know. He wanted to be sure that she knew. And I love... I just love how complicated this all is. It's like he's in some way Frank is quote luckier than Mark or others and that he is getting to have Frank and have this relationship with him, but he can't like even really talk about it. And even though this is happening with Catherine living in the house with him, it's like, there's still, I mean, just the torture. Well, and there are still, yeah, it is. I mean, the torture of not being able to be like loud with your love, like other people are. But I think also, it's interesting seeing these two different perspectives of how Mm -hmm. they should be living because Mark has the same impulses. He has the same attractions and urges as, um, as John does, but he views, um, he's put it away. He's almost like he's like, he's put it away, but I, but also like, I think he has this odd, um, I think you still see this a lot in society, honestly, like this, this respect or not respect, but like loyalty to the marriage that he has with Louisa. And, Mm -hmm. and so he really, even though there's probably a sense of jealousy here that, that John is able to act in ways that Mark can't, I think Mark still kind of disapproves because he, he really sympathizes with Catherine in the situation. He feels like it's disrespectful to her. And I think that's an understandable, you know, kind of issue because often, and one of the saddest things about the fact that, um, for so long, um, people couldn't be with who they loved, right. Is that both people get harmed in the relationship. And so even though Catherine kind of accepts, um, John's sexuality and she lets him keep Frank, I mean, he doesn't, really give her much of a choice either you know and yeah and he he basically tells her like I'm done and I'm not gonna hide anymore and I want to be with him I intend to keep him I love him all those things and um and she she accepts it 
with her own kind of rules and expectations as far as that goes. But, you know, there is this reference to um, when he first told her um, after they'd had their children. And she, it was after he'd been bringing some of these partners that he had um, to the house. And she kind of confronts him about it. And he tells her and she kind of resigns herself to it. But there is this sadness you know, um, that she experiences and that whole situation is, is just really sad, even though you do kind of find this, um, there's this sense in part two, at least that they get to a point where it's manageable and like Frank's presence isn't wholly unwelcome. You know, he can spend time with the family and he can Mm -hmm. socialize with them and, um, it it does kind of come into this kind of um, a new kind of like family, you know, even though I do feel bad for Catherine and I, you know, I kind of hope she's getting a little something, something on the side too. But like, <laughs> it, I don't know. I just, it's, it's interesting it's, seeing it's these sad. two it's, opposing yeah. perspectives of, of what kind of what John owes his wife at this point in their marriage. You know, it's interesting to see like two to kind of um, parallels to each other, approach yeah. the subject and the and the lifestyle very differently. Well, it's just, I think it's such a lovely and lovely sad story. Like, it's just yeah. sad. Because it's, even though, like, nothing, well, I won't spoil it. Even if nothing, like, traumatic happens, it's just sad that this has to be such a thing. Right, that this is even a problem in the first place. And it's sad that, like, it's still kind of like that. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, it's, like, still, it's still definitely so it's, It thing. sucks that it's like, oh, yeah, this is set in 1894 and 1895, and there's a lot of things that aren't that different. Um, but, okay, I want to talk about Henry a little bit. I mm-hmm. love Henry. So Henry does not, like, he's he's not, from my reading of the novel, like, homosexual. His, Mm -hmm. he has his own, what they call, do they call it like a, his own peculiarity. Yeah. Um, and I have kind of an idea of what it is and I believe it has something to do with like women urinating. Yeah. I mean, he's, he says that, that he has, um, he's not sure where it comes from, but he basically gets like hard and, um, aroused at the, thought of that and it's interesting because so they've never consummated their marriage him and Edith even though they've tried so the night or the second night of their honeymoon they try to have sex and he is into it he is aroused pretty much up until the moment that he needs to do it right and then like he just loses his erection and that's just kind of like the end of it but there's this sense that it's not that he's unattracted to her or like sex it's just uh he doesn't even really have the words to describe it but he does he does specifically say that he gets aroused by um women urinating Yeah. And there's like some, and the funny thing is, is even those scenes where like he hears Edith using the restroom 
or mm-hmm. when he's, I don't know if this is later, there's another scene where he's like on a hike um, with Angelica. But um, I really like Henry and I like how kind of there's not much of a fuss made about anything with Henry. And I love a lot Henry's relationship with his with other people in his life. So I love his relationship with Edith, which we can get into more. But I love it with he has this friend Jack who... yes. Who's homosexual. Yeah. And there's, so it's chapter uh, 16 and like a couple pages into it. And it's, he's kind of giving a little bit of a, you you get like a little bit of a history of how he met Jack. They met at school. um, And he says, uh, women were never mentioned, not by Henry because he was too shy. It was one of the things he liked about Jack that he did not talk about women. There was none of that barking, snuffling, wet-nosed camaraderie he had hated at school, and that frightened him in its adult form on his father's ships. He was not made by Jack to feel like an oddity, as though what feelings he had were irredeemably childish and virginal for not being roughly expressed. He never wondered about Jack's quietness. He was not then in the habit of thinking about other people. It was not that he didn't care. With the exception of Edith, he had never cared for anyone so much as he did for Jack at that time only that he saw other people purely as they presented themselves to him, as if he were a black a backcloth receiving a projection. And this was his sole purpose, to show them to themselves. And I just, like, and then there's this one part where, uh, maybe I didn't underline it. Oh, where he, it says, um, basically, Jack made a conf- his confession. And mm-hmm. it was, if Henry recalled correctly, without, a prom- without any prompting, They had eaten at his flat. He knew this because there were crumb-flecked plates on the table. He had no memory of Jack's face as he spoke, only of himself anxiously pressing crumbs to his fingertips. Nor could he remember exactly what Jack's words were. He hadn't asked questions. He had merely accepted the short statements he was given. The conversation changed Henry's whole sense of his friend and changed nothing at all. It had explained some traits and habits... It did not at that time suggest to his mind the possibility of other unknown ones. Jack's projection gained a little clarity of outline, a little depth. They went on with their lives. Mm-hmm. And I loved that, like, and they're st- still dear friends. Yeah. And I, I loved how Henry was almost kind of this interesting, like, I keep saying weather vane, but I, like in my head, but I don't mean weather. But he's almost like this lightning rod for other people without quite knowing what to project himself or how to do it. But he still is such a big part of it. I mean, he's a part of this new life. He is having this untraditional marriage with Edith and he's really cares and loves deeply for Edith and wants her base. I mean, to put it in kind of not very succinct terms, he just wants everyone to live their best life and he wants to figure out what his best life is and live it. But he's just like, doesn't know what that means quite. But I love, I mean, it's kind of said a couple times throughout the book. Um, and he um, says these words or he says, we must live in the future we hope to make. Yeah. And like, that's kind of Henry's purpose in this novel is it's not even like, a, I think specific to sexual inversion. It's just, he knows that there needs to be more of an openness so that whatever your quote peculiarities are, even if you don't understand them quite yourself, there is room to explore and understand them and to live in a future where those things are possible. And I just love 
Henry. And he just makes me sad too. Cause he just seems so not lonely in the like necessarily companionship sense, mm-hmm. because I think he finds he, he, he's a good friend and a good person to be in a relationship with. Like he puts a lot into those things and he feels lonely about himself. Yeah. Like he feels understood by Edith. That's part of their attraction Mm -hmm. together is they have a really true, it's it's like they're intellectual soulmates and, and they discuss the way that they're able to communicate with each other in ways that, um, especially Henry is not able to communicate with others. He's very shy man. He has difficulty kind of expressing, um, his thoughts, well, with certain people, he's pretty expressive and, and clear with Edith, um, and with Jack, but he, um, has a difficult time kind of getting to know people and like just talking with people, but he shows up. So like he goes to that society, he doesn't necessarily say anything. He doesn't necessarily talk to anybody, but he kind of absorbs everything kind of like you said. Um, yeah. And he communicates well in his writing. Yes. Like he's a very prolific writer. I mean, obviously he's writing this book yeah. with Jack and he's written quite a few. Not So like that's really where he gets, it's almost like that's where he works it out. Yeah. But I do think that like even with all of um, their kind of hopes for the future and, and the relationships in, in these unique this this new kind of marriage, I guess, that they want to live, there is a kind of tension as well because I think Henry sometimes, with his simplicity and his unassuming nature in a way as far as other people, um, he seems kind of oblivious um, in certain situations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, I mean... Because I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, didn't you think at the end that there was this, you know, this moment where Edith is, tells him that she's sexually inverted and that she and Angelica are in love with each other? There's this odd kind of like surprise that he has that um, I was surprised by his response to it. You know, like his kind of like, you love each other? Like, obviously, my dude. Like, how did you not see that? <laughs> You know? Yeah, I think I understand. I think it's almost just this like closed offedness and not in a um, like ignorant way or a hateful way, but just in a like he doesn't even quite understand himself. Yeah. And like how to interact with himself. So it's even though he wants these these like connections and these relationships and uh, both intellectually and romantically, like all the things, I think he just doesn't. I think it. I think it's almost to me. I interpreted it as another way that pe- like repression can affect people, right? So like John has had to repress his sexuality, and it's led to him being in this marriage with like this totally love this marriage, and that now kids are brought into it, and he's you know not happy, and yeah. and they live this not. I mean, while it's all kind of working, this relationship that he's got going on with Frank while living in the house is not great for his wife. Like, it creates damage, right? And Henry, even though he's not a homosexual, he can't even... Like, like repression is still a thing, just about sexuality in general, too. And so I think that that repression has affected Henry in such a way that, like, he's just doesn't... He's just very closed and inward and isn't able to really see like like uh they they do these questionnaires for their book they want to interview 
men who are sexual inverts and they're all going to be anonymous. It made me think a lot of like Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, but he, they, inter- he interviews Jack again. <laughs> I love, no, I love uh, Jack. Uh, so he has the questionnaire done and yeah. there's a, he, Henry's asking him quite a few questions and Edith is taking notes. So like, mm-hmm. she's a part of this too, which I like. Um, so he, let's see, he asks him, do you feel any moral qualms? And Jack says, mm-hmm. no, the answer came out baldly. None at all. I did once. Now I cannot see where affection between people of the same sex differs from love as it is ordinarily understood. Everything I have ever read in books or seen in plays, everything I have seen in my life of ordinary love, I have known in inverted form. It cannot ever seem unnatural or abnormal because it has been natural and spontaneous in me. Jack's eyes were soft with tears. Thank you, Henry said. That is the end. And then Mm -hmm. they kind of have this nice goodbye and they leave. And then Edith says, you realize you didn't ask whether he has someone. And Henry says, that is not one of the questions. And she says, I know. Should I have done? Oh, Henry, she said, yes, you should. Mm -hmm. Like, so he's... I think he's just so, cause like he doesn't have that. So it's right. interesting also to see you've got John who is having to hide, but he does have this love. He's felt this. He's interviewing his friend, Jack, who has to hide, but just gives this beautiful, like just quick I mean, statement it's, it's about pretty, how it's pretty like, guttingly gorgeous this appreciation for totally. his human body and this kind of confidence that you know i'm i know i'm natural i know that these yes. impulses like are because they, they are spontaneous good in me. And they, yeah yes like, and yes. this is the same love i see represented like how yeah it's just the perfect explanation which i but, also i like these kind of intellectual ideas in the way that he expresses it about his sexuality in relation to also all the references to Walt Whitman throughout the whole novel, because that's what the transcendentalists and Walt Whitman Mm -hmm. and Ralph Waldo Emerson were all about. It was the spontaneity and like the God in every person. And and this idea that God was inside of the human and like every person is a part of the world and, and is kind of um, not perfect in its own way, but like maybe perfectly imperfect in its own way and, and a part of nature in a way that previously like people hadn't really thought of. And I like that kind of lived experience of that idea, um, that is referenced by referencing Walt, Walt Whitman throughout the, throughout the book. I I agree. It's gorgeous. I loved it. Like, like you said, I just, all the different ways, I mean, because honestly, love's about connection, right? And our humanity mm-hmm. needs connection. And how much trouble we go to as a society to prevent people from having connection that, because that keeps them out of power, right? And like, it's just so sad, but I love all the different ways that everyone in this novel finds ways to connect. You know, it's through mm-hmm. letters. It's through poetry of others it's through the society meetings it's through forming these new relationships it's like despite all the roadblocks Mm -hmm. they're all still finding these ways to find these connections to find other people like them despite how dangerous that is you know I mean even the scenes with John going to the serpentine 
and looking at the men bathing. Yeah. Like there's nothing. I mean, that's the other thing too, is it's totally okay. Like that's totally normal. Like the men would just go and bathe in the river. Like that's what you did right. in the Serpentine River. Um, also, it's probably a great pickup spot <laughs> if you are sexually inverted. Mm-hmm. But just the, the just being around these other men, even like John doesn't approach any of them. Frank approaches John. Like John mm-hmm. isn't there to pick up anyone, but he's there to just find connection. Right. And I just think all the ways that these people are and, looking for connection and trying yeah. to, to have it. And to appreciate like beauty in the world. Like I, I really loved the descriptions in this book as far as the way bodies are described and this kind mm-hmm. of una, unashamed description of the human body and the um, whether it be when there's sex involved between the characters or just an appreciation for a piece of artwork or something as subtle as the way calves look right like like something really simple but this like appreciation for the human body and for like the beauty around us and how it's okay to appreciate um the beauty around us and um you don't have to you know, John, like you said, John didn't, doesn't go there to pick anybody up necessarily, but he certainly is appreciating what he's seeing and it's totally okay. Um, I, I thought it was pretty well explained by John actually in one of his letters, it's in chapter 15 and it ends and he's kind of talking about, um, the way that sexual inversion is, treated in different countries versus how it is treated in England and how, you know, part of what they really need to focus on is the law and explaining and undermining it really. Um, but he, he makes comparisons to France and Italy, um, where he, he says, um, the law intervenes only to protect the young with a protected age for boys as for girls to preserve public decency, barring, resort to the street or open spaces and to punish rape. There has been no surge in inverted practice, no spreading moral infection. Give nor abnormal love the same chance as normal love. Subject it to the wholesome control of public opinion. Allow it to be self-respecting. Draw it from the dark slums into the light of day. Strike off its chains and let set it free. And I am confident that it will exhibit analogous virtues. Um, and I think that's so true. Like the 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 fear that society has for homosexual love and for gay people, part of that is because it's been in the shadows and they don't understand it. And mm-hmm. also the the effects of having to um, like hide your sexual nature from the beginning, you know, like that's part of what makes it feel... Um, I don't know. It's not described as like dirty in this book, but like the shame, like the shame that could be assigned to it is because of the, the fact that it's hidden in the shadows and treated as such and has to be, you know, I wrote down notes about that. There's just so much talk of lighting and fog Mm -hmm. and shadows and murkiness Mm -hmm. and just this whole, this whole cloud kind of hangs over it of like what Mm -hmm. comes out of the light, what stays in it. And again, not in a, not in a dirty way, but just in a, how they have to live their life that way. And it's very aware of what is visible, what is not visible, what, Mm -hmm. you know, and when they're able to like the scene where Frank 
pulls John outside mm. and they kiss out there on the sidewalk because there's fog. And that happened in London all the time. Mm-hmm. And like there's fog all around them. And just that idea of like being able to be outside, but you're still in the shadows and how they have to have. Yeah, I loved all of it. It set such a good tone for the novel and and like his descriptions of London. I mean, so the author, he has a PhD in 19th century British history from Cambridge. So like he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just, it's so richly developed and mm-hmm. I just, no, I yeah. think, I think, I think you're right. Like lighting and shadows and fog and, and everything like that is, is a pretty clear motif of um, just how they're, love has to be hidden and or shared and also like the the freedom that comes in like relishing doing it in the daylight like I love the Mm -hmm. description of um it's one of the first times that um John and Frank really engage with each other and it's I think it's the first time that he he asks Frank to undress and he does not himself undress but he asks Frank to and he asks him you know, like he, he's worried about the window and someone seeing through the window and John says, no, nobody can see. And besides, like, I want to see you in this light, like this again, almost like a, a artistic appreciation for each other's bodies and not wanting to be ashamed. And, and that's also part of, um, you know, why John does insist on bringing Frank to his house is the fact that he, this is him saying he's not ashamed anymore. And that, you know, like he's going to live his life and mm-hmm. be with him and be happy and keep the happiness while he can. And I, I just, it's something that I really did enjoy those descriptions and the connection yeah. throughout. I feel like this book is, there's so many layers and there's so many like pieces that are th- clear throughout th- that you could do like whole essays just on the way that this book is constantly referencing like the work of Walt women and, mm-hmm. and the importance that, you know, the, the kind of impact that he had. I also feel like, I don't know, this, this book makes me almost sad for kind of the lack of like intellectual analysis and, and conversation and this almost like communal appreciation for, like works of art. I don't know. Like I feel like people engage with art, but I, but I love the way that these characters specifically engage with art and and writing and poetry before them and mm-hmm. it's different than I than the way I feel like people engage with it now. And I I mean certainly people in the, in maybe the um upper crust of society are engaging it in it with in a different way than I am, but um I just, I loved the way that, you know, Whitman kind of just, everybody knows what they're talking about when they're talking about Whitman, you know? I love, I love that you brought that up because that's one of the things I love about literature and I love how Mm -hmm. it's represented in this novel is the way that you can look to artists in this situation, specifically like Whitman and then also a wild as, as ways to see yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and this is why it's just, I mean, it's why it's happening. It's why books are being banned, right? Because right. the powers that be don't want people to see themselves mm-hmm. in 
any way that isn't how they want I don't know I'm them not to be. They don't want them yeah. to be empowered and by so heaven forbid you represented. Re- yeah. yeah. And that's why it's so powerful and so important. And the fact that Whitman, who, you know, is is this kind of uh, like compass a little bit for not a compass, but something they can kind of I'll point to, you know, the the Greeks, quote unquote, like mm-hmm. just all of just how you can see yourself still, like if you're looking for some sort of connection, representation, voice, if you can't do it by connecting with other people in person, like just being able to kind of look for that in art, I think is just so important. Mm-hmm. And then they bring that up so much. And I mean, that's the other thing too. All their arguments make perfect sense. Like it's just such oh, a... And, and it, they know it does because they're like, oh, and then reason follows X, Y, Z. Logical reasoning, this is what comes after all of the, you know, those things. And it's true. It's so obvious what yes. when they're saying what they're saying that it's correct. And, and part of it is, you know, like the hope that these things are true now and and they you know it's it's interesting because they talk about it in um they talk about similar things but with different kind of background subjects right so like obviously homosexuality is still a hot topic it is still a recent topic it is you know gay marriage has not been here for that long you know like it's Mm -hmm. it's still heated and there's still um a lot of efforts happening in the United States and elsewhere to hinder people's freedom to express their love. We're seeing that all across the country. Um, and I liked too, that they made some of these same arguments about things that maybe aren't as controversial anymore, such as the women's right to vote and like the, the discussions and conversations they have around that and how it's a perfect form of democracy. But then, you know, it shows that people are talking about how it's also dangerous because of the, it exacerbates the dangers of democracy and like these, these interesting intellectual conversations that are happening in 1894 um, when this book takes place, but it's, stuff now that nobody's really exactly debating the women's right to vote. Although I'm sure a lot of people would prefer it if we didn't, but like, it's not a debate anymore. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's interesting seeing, you know, things that aren't up for debate being debated. And then the same kind of debates happening around homosexuality where I think, right. Hopefully most of us hasn't changed. Yeah. But like a lot, the conversations are circular. It's the same kind of thing. Um, outside of these very specific uh, laws criminalizing it, which is, yeah. again, awful. It, it, I just loved this novel. I just could mm-hmm. not put it down. I never wanted to stop reading it. I loved these characters. I loved the love in it. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was so beautiful and so touching and so just, I, and I just, like, what a debut novel. I agree. I agree. Like, I can't wait to talk about the second parts. We only talked about parts one and two. Although know, a lot all... of the themes carry throughout, but like we still only talked about parts one and two. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot to this novel and we've definitely got to get more into like Edith and Angelica and Henry. I just think mm-hmm. that opens up a lot more in part two um, and into, you know, I mean, it, it really does talk a lot about, progress and what's worth jeopardizing to get progress and who 
who is responsible for the risk, who maybe is collateral damage, like just, you know, and what, what, um, what pushes change, you know, and who's responsible for that Mm -hmm. and what should you have to sacrifice? You know, we talked a little bit about Henry. I read that passage where he didn't really know about Jack because he hadn't really thought of it. Like so much of us are just kind of just thinking about ourselves. Right. And so it's kind of also this concept of when do you need to be selfish and when do you need to be unselfish and what's the line on that? And like, you know, and I think the same thing with John and Catherine, we'll talk about their relationship more in part two, because it opens up more too, but there's like, that's the thing, like that there's just so many layers to yeah, this it's novel. a lot about and, of like when do you decide to put yourself at risk, even if it's maybe not you that is being uh, hurt by certain things, right? Like I, I like mm-hmm. that idea too of um, when do you speak up for like the other or like the larger community at a whole. I think it's I'm excited to talk about the rest of the book for sure. Yeah, very good pick. Very impressive debut. I love um, this. Super fun to read. Intellectually stimulating the entire, entire time. Yes. Um, I loved it. I also liked the sexual scenes. That's not something we really talked about, but I thought, again, like that they were just really done and really. I did too. Um, really well done. Really sexy. Really human. Really loveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sweet. So, again, I have not procured or decided um the next book that we are going to discuss but i promise i'll have it for the next episode so thanks well i hope you guys if you hadn't read the novel this has inspired you to read it you will not be disappointed so go pick up a copy Mm -hmm. of the new life by tom crew from your local bookstore or bookshop.org get caught up we'll be discussing parts three and four in our next episode truly can't say enough like i have nothing negative to say about the novel agreed like not a thing so uh love this one so i hope you guys do too so thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time